Open up your Bibles to the New Testament. This, uh, this event in the Lord's ministry is covered in all three synoptic Gospels. Uh, so pick your favorite, not John. Remember, John's not a synoptic Gospel. Matthew has this event in Matthew chapter 20, verses 29 through 34. Mark has this event in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And Dr. Luke, which is usually my preferred account, is in Luke 18, verse 35 through 43. And you'll note, too, that as we've gone through, even as now we've got other accounts covering these events, it's still pretty chronological in Luke's account. And the reason for that is Dr. Luke obviously wasn't around when these events happened. So he's getting a lot of it from probably Simon Peter, commentator to lead Paul, but also the other disciples or apostles as they were together. He's putting these things into account um, at not even necessarily a later date, but after it all had occurred. Uh, so that's the main reason why a lot of his is chronological the way that it is. So let's consider First Matthew 20. And the event that we're looking at here is the blind men healed near Jericho. And we're moving back toward Jerusalem. What, the last thing that we looked at was Jesus uh, talking about uh, what he's going to suffer in Jerusalem. And it is at that point that the journey starts taking them back toward Jerusalem. And we'll see this journey for a couple more lessons uh, before we're officially back into that territory. Matthew chapter 20, starting in verse 29. Again, if you're looking at the outlines, I've underlined some of the things that are different in each account that kind of piece into this, and I'll point that out uh, as I go. Matthew 20, starting in verse 29. And as they departed from Jericho, a great multitude followed him. And behold, two blind men sitting by the wayside. Matthew's account is the uh, really the only one that tells us there's two. So that's one of the major differences between his and the other two accounts. Two blind men sitting by the wayside, when they heard that Jesus passed by, cried out, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And the multitude rebuked them, because they should hold their peace. But they cried the more, saying, Have mercy on us, O Lord, thou son of David. And Jesus stood still and called them and said, What will ye that I shall do unto you? They say unto him, Lord, that our eyes may be opened. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, and immediately their eyes received sight, and they followed him. Mark's account, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. And they came to Jericho, and as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great number of people. So this is just confirming that all those that have been following, and probably a few more at this point since he started teaching on discipleship, they're following him out of Jericho. They're following him toward Jerusalem. Pretty important that they're following toward Jerusalem more so than Jericho. And the next part here is original to Mark's account. He's really the only one who names one of these blind beggars. He says, Blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the highway side begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, thou son of David, have mercy on me. And many charged him that he should hold his peace. But he cried the more a great deal. Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, casting away his garment, arose and came to Jesus. And Jesus answered and said unto him, What wilt thou that I should do unto thee? The blind man said unto, uh, unto him, Lord, that I might receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. That also is original to Mark's account. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus in the way. 
I love that Jesus tells him to go, go thy way, go your own way. Your faith has made you whole. And the way that he goes is following Jesus. That's right. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43 is the last of the synoptic gospel accounts. And Dr. Luke writes, And it came to pass that as he was come nigh into Jericho, a certain blind man sat by the wayside begging. Now notice Mark and Luke don't say there's only one. They just don't mention the second one, and Matthew does. And then this next part (coughs) is original to Dr. Luke. And hearing the multitude pass by, he asked what it meant. So if we just read Matthew's account, we would assume one of these two, if not both these blind men, were somehow mystically aware of this being Jesus. But in Mark's account, we see that he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth. In Luke's account, we see that he asked what is going on. There's a great multitude following Jesus, and this blind man wants to know what is going on. It's not every day this many people follow by and follow one man. What's going on? And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth passeth by. And he cried, saying, Jesus, now son of David, have mercy on me. And they which went before rebuked him, that he should hold his peace. But he cried so much the more, Thou son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stood and commanded him to be brought unto him. And when he was come near, he asked him, saying, What wilt thou that I shall do unto thee? And he said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. And Jesus said unto him, Receive thy sight, thy faith hath saved thee. And immediately he received his sight and followed him. And then this last part is original to Luke's account, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise unto God. I'm struck by what it must have been like for Dr. Luke to hear these stories of the Lord Jesus Christ from the apostles. A thrill, certainly, to be able to record it, to minister to these men and be able to record what he's heard. But to see the excitement and the joy in their eyes and in their voices as they tell the stories of the one they walked with, the one they followed, the one who stood before them and said all things. It must have been like the woman at the well. Come see the man who knew all my dirty deeds, knew every despicable thing about me. Come meet him. Come see the Messiah. I wonder how often he cried as he penned these words of these events. He wasn't there for them, but he knew the men that had had been impacted by it. There were two cities named Jericho. As we start to dive into the semantics of what we're dealing with here, the, the ruined old city and the new city, which was about a mile away. And this is why in the three accounts, one says they're coming in, another one says they're going out. It's because they really were. There's two Jerichos. Uh, and this new city was about a mile away and it was built by Herod. This kind of helps to explain that, you know, in Matthew 20, 29, de- we reread they departed from Jericho. They draw near Jericho in Luke 18, 35, and they come and go out of Jericho all at the same time and still meet the two beggars according to Matthew 20, 30. Uh, so hopefully that clears it up a little bit. Uh, you'll find every time a Herod's involved, there's about to be some major confusion. Uh, and, and this is no different. Mark describes the healing of Bartimaeus, the more vocal of the two blind men, just as he did the healing of the one of the, Gar, uh, the Gerardine demoniacs in chapter 5, verse 2. Just a reminder, there were two, not just one. And that's also the importance of having the synoptic gospels to, to express these things. It almost sounds like a different event if you don't take them in chronological order. This miracle that we have here with Bartimaeus and the unnamed blind man is a picture of salvation. 
We have to be careful with the elements here, but it is a picture of salvation. The two men were blind, and every lost sinner is blind. And in one account, we even see uh, they called the blind man, saying unto him, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And that's in Mark's account. In Luke's account, or no, I'm sorry, in staying in Mark's account, Be of good comfort, rise, he calleth thee. And he, the blind man, or maybe both, cast away his garment, rose and came to Jesus. Still blind. He received a general call. This is Jesus. He requireth of thee. And being blind, he comes to Jesus. He cast away his garment. Now, this isn't an act earning salvation, but it is the pursuit of Christ. It is one faithfully following who's been told in just Mark's account alone that this is the son of David, that this is Christ Jesus of Nazareth. And by this time in his ministry, again, quoting Paul like we did a few weeks ago, none of this was done in secret. None of this was done in a corner. Anybody who heard the name Jesus of Nazareth knew some of the things that had been going on. Uh, 5,000 plus fed of fish and loaves for one example. The miracle of the wine at the wedding, probably a more uh, disclosed secret, but word is spreading rapidly that this man claims to be on equal plane with God himself. And he's performing miracles all around the geography of this area. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, again, quoting Paul, just to get our minds wrapped around all that's involved here. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the first six verses. We read, Therefore, seeing we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not, but have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them who are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, have shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do we see the disciples doing? We're not necessarily told who it is, but we see at least more than one disciple encouraging these blind men to hush up and get off off the road. Get out of here. They rebuked him. This isn't a silent... This is a rebuking, which is a harsh word, yes, but Jesus did it to Simon Peter. The church does it to disciplined members. Before they're removed, they're reproved and rebuked. It's a requirement of the church. It's demonstrated by Christ, and it's exercised here in error. He's crying out for mercy from the only one who can provide it. And Jesus says, bring him forth. Now, following a chain of authority, that is how it has to be. Because I can't save anybody, like we said this morning. If our visitors in the back were to come forward and say, Oh, son of David, talk more about him. I want to be saved. None of us should say, shh. And none of us could even, at the same time, none of us could bring them to Jesus. Because it's not our authority to grant that. It's his. So while we can first read this and say, These guys are out of line to hush up this blind man. Well, it was also out of line for this blind beggar to cry after a rabbi in the way that he was doing. Jesus had to be the one to, to deal with the authority issue that is kind of being usurped there by that blind beggar. 
Praise the Lord, the example that we have, Christ Jesus does say, bring him forward. And he does perform a healing miracle, but not the disciples. The disciples pointed out, this is the son of David. This is the Messiah. They gave him a message of encouragement and of good news that this is the way to the kingdom of heaven. But it has to be him that brings us in. They were poor beggars. And the lost sinner is a poverty-stricken, the lost sinner is poverty-stricken apart from Christ. We have nothing and we can do nothing. They cried out to Jesus who alone can open men's eyes. And notice too that they could not get to Jesus unless they were led. We read this in Romans 10 as we continue this illustration of salvation here. In Romans 10 verses 14 through 17, very familiar text, we read, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they shall not or they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? So then, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Jesus showed them mercy. They were were not healed by their praying. They were not healed by their crying. They were healed by Jesus. Their faith is what connected the two. Their faith in Him, their belief in Him, allowed for the healing to take place. The crowd initially tried to stop them. The world today does the same thing. Try to keep sinners sinners. And we said a few weeks ago that we should do nothing that encourages a sinner to stay in sin. We should do nothing that encourages a born-again believer to stay in sin either. There should be nothing in our words or our action or our approach that encourages one to stay in sin as though it is a better option than to repent. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the message of John the Baptist going through the wilderness, eating delightful snacks that he found along the way. And when he was imprisoned, It also became the message of the Lord Jesus Christ as He performed His ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for I am the portion laid out before you to die for the multitude who will believe. I hear Him. The world today tries to keep sinners from coming to Christ through so many methods. So many easy healing methods of the day to promote big pharma and our own politicians. So many easy believism methods in which you can just stay home. Going to church is not essential. I don't think we've heard the last of that phrase. But it will be easier for the next generation to believe it because they'll remember COVID. Beloved, we're in dangerous times these last days. We're in times in which our our own children, our own siblings in Christ who have walked alongside of us, who have heard the truth, would choose something easier to digest if given the opportunity. We have to be steadfast for our reasons for being here, our reasons for worship. The touch of Christ healed them and their fruit proved that their lives had changed for when he told them to go thy way, the text shows plainly they followed him. Isn't that wonderful? Let's consider some basic elements of this healing before we pass on. First and foremost, Bartimaeus' faith and action. 
Bartimaeus was a beggar. We can assume the same is true of both blind men, but we only have the name of the one, and he, this one is referenced in all three accounts. So understand when I say Bartimaeus, it can apply to both of these blind men. But he was a beggar, not even the owner of a meaningful name. His name literally means son of Timaeus. And we find him blind and begging on the sideway, on the, or on the high side of the highway. There we go. On the side of the highway. Sounds like a kid's book that I couldn't read. The highways, of course, are where a beggar could find the most people to beg from. How many people did he see to beg from? It's a trick question. He's blind. Can you imagine a life in which your livelihood is dependent on seeing people to beg from? And he can't. He is where beggars would tend to be, but he's incapable of seeing them approach. It's likely that his best cry for their mercy or their tokens or their charity is as they've passed by. That's the life that Bartimaeus and this other beggar had. It's interesting that a beggar knows where to find people, yet the Christians today who are to look to witness can't seem to find anyone to give the gospel to. A blind beggar knew the right place to be. He knew the right things to cry for. I need mercy. And the things that we should cry is that we have mercy. We know mercy. We know the Savior. He began begging for that which he needed most. We need food and water to live, yes. But a man can have more than what is necessary to survive and still die. You ever had too much water? You'll drown. You ever have too much food? You'll die. It's not good. We hear every day where doctors tell a man he should cut back, he should lose some weight, that it would be good for his heart. But people don't typically drown in air. They drown in these things that we need moderation of. But what we need most is grace. And mercy. This is why when they try to hush up this blind man or these blind men, they cry out even more. They're used to not hearing the people walk by until they're almost gone. They cry out even more. Son of David, have mercy on me. Their hope was not in the Christian before them. Their hope was not in the crowds that were shushing them. Their hope was in that man, Jesus Christ. To live eternally, we must have Jesus. There was something for Bartimaeus that became a greater need that day. He couldn't have asked anything of Jesus. He said, what will thou have me to do? It may sound like a silly question for a God, a great physician, one who's able to heal, to ask a blind man what he would have him to do. This is what he asked us. He asked this of everyone that comes in contact with the Lord Jesus. There is that question. What will you have of me? first what will you have of me because he tests the heart do you really want to worship me then take Isaac up the mount and sacrifice him it wasn't about killing Isaac that was about the heart of Abraham do you really want to worship God then you will have to be dependent on nothing else but Jesus it could cost us everything. For Abraham that day, he'd waited for Isaac for so long. The widow woman told the old prophet, why did you give me hope 
Why did you give me a child? I've been barren for years and you gave me a child just to take him away. And God had told Abraham years before Isaac was coming. Abraham could have said, why did you even tell me he was coming? It would have been better for us to have him as a surprise of sorts for a decade or two and then have you take him than to anticipate his arrival for years and then have him for a decade or two and lose him. Because he wasn't a child, remember. He was of age. He's likely 15, maybe even older. But Abraham rises up and desires God more in that chapter than his own son. Any of us in here truly there? Myself included. Are we truly to that point where we are dependent on nothing else but God? It may mean that we have to quit our jobs. It may mean that we have to relocate. We have countless churches now without pastors. When's the last time you heard of any of those folks relocating to where there is one? We don't do that anymore. And I'm not saying they're right or wrong. It could be they're right where the Lord would have them to be. But the admiration that I would have for a Christian that says, I've got to be fed. I need the word of God. And I may not have a job in Tulsa, but there's a pastor there. There's a church family there. I do know of one. I do know of one, in fact. He's been living out of somebody else's house for a couple of months so that he could be fed again. The second thing we see here is Jesus standing and calling. Jesus was walking, uh, was walking on his way to Jerusalem, as we've said, and he's on his way for the final Passover. And if you've been paying attention to this study and listening to the older messages and you're disappointed that I've never one time mentioned Passovers except that it's occurring at this moment or another, it's coming. I'm waiting for this final one to really bring all those back so that we understand the significance of all these things. But just so you know, he's on his way to that last Passover in Jerusalem. And the cries for mercy stop him in his tracks. This brings to mind an interesting question. Do we cry for mercy? The recent months have been tough. Have we been brought to the point where we've cried for the mercy of God? Do we have faith? Or do we, in faith, expect that we will be heard? We have had just a glimpse of what the boys' home does down the road for those boys. Just a taste of what those boys' lives have been like up until the moment where they've been granted access, and there's only 50 of them, to that campus. And as Charlie said this morning, it's going to get hard. It's way worse for way more than we have ever experienced. Notice the determination of of these blind men as the crowd, perhaps those who had been traveling with Jesus and seen the many wonderful things that he had done, they urged him to stay silent. Some in that crowd had been healed. Remember the one whose parents said, he's of age, so that they wouldn't lose their membership to the synagogue? Their son was once blind and healed. We don't read where he comes running in there and says, no, 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 let him beg. Let him beg for the mercy of Jesus. But we see they cry the more a great deal. What oppresses us today? Does it cause us to remain silent before God? Does it prevent us from crying out for His mercy? Hebrews 12, chapter chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. Breakfast was way too good, and now I can't get my words out. 
Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily beset us. I'm going to stop there for a minute. We get to the point of crying out for mercy with faith that He will hear us. Here's the reasoning for our witnessing. We are compassed about with a cloud of witnesses. We are compassed about with multitudes of opportunities for which we can speak of Jesus. But we have yet to lay aside every weight. You know, sometimes my greatest weight is my job. I'm thankful for my job. The Lord blessed me with my job. And in COVID, he took it away, and then he brought it back again. Uh, They don't have for me to compromise on my beliefs. I'm thankful for what I get to do. But there are times when I could be doing more for the Lord, and I use that as a weight. I would, but I've, I've got this weight. I would go, but I can't go far because I've got this weight. Sometimes I use my children. Sometimes I use my wife. I've been using the contractors for two months. I would, but I, I can't. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that doth so easily beset us and the sin that so doth easily bump us off the rails. We've gone down to the Chick-fil-A in Sand Springs lately. I think they've had at least two train derailments with that construction they're doing. I used to work in the railroad industry. It's not hard for a train to derail. It doesn't always result in the engine being on its side. It just comes off the alignment of the tracks. And it's got to have a crane required most of the time to put it right back on again. We are so easily derailed. Sin is all around us and it does so easily beset us. Uh, We just read recently uh, the dangers of being that trap stick that trips the snare for young believers. Because even though we're not considered young believers in that example, we can so easily beset others with our sin. And then he says, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Why run with patience? Tribulation, patience, long-suffering, all those blessings that we just heard about, the blessings of justification. It's connected and tied to patience. We should run with patience because we have more to learn. We should run with patience because we're still growing. We should run with patience because while we've gone from milk to meat, we still have more to grow in. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. He is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. What he has started in us, he continues to work through us, and we'll see it all the way through to the end. Who for that joy, or for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Nothing should keep us from calling and going unto Jesus. Nothing was going to silence this blind man who's pleading for his very life, pleading for any ounce of mercy he could receive. The rich man in hell pleaded too. Got nothing. This life is the only life in which we can plead and be heard. If you desire or require mercy, plead, beg through the Lord Jesus Christ that blessings or mercy come. For they're the only source. Beloved, Jesus knew where he was headed. He knew of this final Passover. He knew of what was waiting for him in Jerusalem as evidenced by the fact that he told the brethren just before this event, that's where I'm going. You ask more of me, Simon Peter, James and John. Remember, 
the inner circle. You ask more of me, but I know what's coming. And I know I'm doing it for you. And I know it's the Father's will for you. He knew where he was headed. He knew the importance of making that appointment. He just made reference to it. Yet the cry of one of his elect sheep stopped his journey. Shepherds, uh, again, I, I mentioned Philip Keller this morning. I don't know if anybody started reading any of that. But if you read uh, Shepherds, look at Psalm 23. I think it's what it's called. It's amazing what a shepherd does for his sheep. You consider a shepherd leading maybe a hundredfold sheep. And if one is injured, he will have more compassion from the shepherd than he will his own mama. That's absolutely true. A, 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 a sheep with a broken leg or, or an injured limb, they're cannon fodder, they're wolf bait. A sheep knows that it can't drag that other sheep along. It's left behind. But you know what the shepherd does? The shepherd stops the entire line and they obey the voice of the shepherd. And he goes to that injured one and he hoists that injured one up upon his shoulders and he carries it until it's able to walk again or until they're able to get to where it can be cared for properly. It be, the shepherd becomes the legs for that sheep. And it is carried beyond all that would hope to injure or devour it. You know what? The devil, as a lion roaring about seeking whom he will devour, the devil who is, was seeking to shred Peter, to sift him as wheat, Jesus said, he's doing that. He's roaming right now. But if one, even on his journey to the last Passover, cried out for mercy and he was of the elect of God, the entire line of followers or sheep are stopped in place and he tends to the wounds of that one. Oh, how we should rejoice over the words there in Mark's account in verse 49. Jesus stood and called. Jesus was walking. Jesus was in motion. But he stopped and called. Remember, we, start, we talked about this in the opening. He's the only one with the authority for that blind man to be hurt. He's the only one who could have started that conversation or, or allowed for that conversation to go further than, please stop, wait, hope, hope, I need mercy. It wouldn't have ever gone any further than that had Jesus not stopped and called. That's how it was for Stephen when he was being murdered by the angry uh, lynch mob that was organized for his death. Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He saw Him standing there and He even spoke to Him. Acts 7, verse 56, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. Acts 7, verse 59, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. The next verse, verse 60, Lord, lay not this sin to their charge. Stephen is speaking as though he's having a direct conversation with the shepherd. As though, if you'll come up here, even though he is being stoned to death. Let's call somebody faster next time, Jerry. Stephen's talking to Lord Jesus as though he has been lifted and put upon his shoulders. Lay not this to their charge. Have mercy on them. He sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, but He's been hoisted upon the shoulders of the shepherd. He is a martyr and He's injured in the name of Christ and He's not forsaken. But Jesus hoists Him up 
to have the heart of Deacon Stephen to say, lay this not to their charge? I don't think we get there until we've overcome these other things and putting aside the weight that easily besets us. That sin that surrounds us at all times. Do we have the heart in which we would ask the Lord to not avenge our blood, but to rather not lay it to their account? Stephen cried out for mercy and the Lord Jesus was seen standing and calling. As we find that Saul was later converted as a result of that very testimony. That was the general call. Saul is mentioned throughout Acts 7 as being right there. Those garments were laid at his feet. He is the one who had the authority and he is the one made witness to the power and the glory and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to the use of Bartimaeus' found condition and this is the final point where we'll stop. The use of Bartimaeus' found condition. So many are convinced they've done too much evil to receive any good. I, uh, at one point, you're going to figure this out eventually. I've had a lot of jobs. At one point, I was a manager of an Ashley Furniture warehouse, a distribution center. And I had a driver for me that, I mean, he would, if I asked him to take the Ashley Furniture truck, load it overweight, and drive it through a brick wall, he'd do it just because I asked him to do it. He was an amazing, he had an amazing servant's heart. So we got to talking on one drive. Uh, this was in Bowling Green, Ohio. And we were on our way to Defiance, which is about a 45-minute drive in, in a furniture truck. And we had to pick up something and, and deliver it on the way back. And uh, all my other drivers were over hours, so I went out with him. It's pretty typical. He and I worked together like that a lot. And then he started talking. I knew he was a veteran. He always had his, uh, his veteran jacket. He was a biker. I should probably, he's a very rough man for, to image-wise. And uh, we were talking and... I said, you ought to come to church. I said, I know you know the Lord. The conversations we've had, I know you know the Lord. You ought to come to church. At that time, I was pastoring in temperance. And he said, I couldn't. He said, if you knew the evil that I've done, the building would collapse around us if I walked in. Mark was a soldier that was a prisoner of war for about six months. And I won't burden you with where, but I've probably referenced it before that the cell that he was in. I know my kids have heard it. There's no light. Uh, it was always damp. He said you could always hear water dripping. He said you could smell the staleness of the food when they toss it into the cell. You only got fed once a day. And he said you had to beat the rats to it because you could hear them scurrying to the food as soon as the, the plate hit the ground. And he said the food was so awful you wouldn't want to eat it anyway if you weren't brought to the point where you were so hungry. Six months he was a prisoner of war. Six months seeing some of the worst that mankind could do. And he felt himself too wicked to step inside the doors of one of the Lord's churches. In other words, too wicked to receive mercy from God. He considered himself forsaken. I just had to tell him about my bunny, though. Do you remember the little girl we talked about a week ago? I had to tell him about my bunny. And he'd light up every once in a while when we'd talk about it. He never came. But that's the compassion we've been charged with. That's that silver cup. Those who come in have heard the truth at some point to consider coming in. Those that we go out to in the highways and the hedges, it's hard to believe they wouldn't have heard of the Lord Jesus at this point in, in history. But they don't know anything of His hope. Not likely anyway. They don't know anything of the kindness 
of this shepherd who stops the flock in place to hear the cries of his elect. Sometimes we have such things to work with as blindness and deafness and disease and so on so that it might bring us to Jesus. There are those who think that every affliction is because of sin. And we know that from the previous healing of a blind man. What was it that the disciples said? Who sinned that this man would be blind? The synagogue had those same questions. But sometimes these things happen or we're made to go through these experiences because it brings us closer to Jesus. It brings us to a point on the highway in which we are right where we need to be to cry out for help. He gives us great cause to be looking for mercy. We had a member there in Temperance. Um, his sister was dying of cancer. And she, every person who would visit her in the hospital, they would hear the gospel before they left. Every single person. She became a beacon of hope. As people came expecting some weak, frail human dying in a bed, they received hope from one who was so close to seeing her Savior. That was Jerry, your uncle. One of the people that visited Jerry's sister was his uncle Tom. He lost his entire life, was saved. After she offered the general call, the Holy Spirit made it effectual. And you never met a man that loved the Lord as much as Uncle Tom after that. Beloved, Jesus saves and changes people on a regular basis. And it's always for a reason. We can't look at the afflictions of this life and think we've been forsaken. The afflictions of this life might be being used as the laws, our schoolmaster, to point us to Jesus. To prepare us to be so empty within that we can be filled up by him. Through the condition Bartimaeus was found in, he desired to receive his sight. And he believed the stories of miraculous healings that followed this man, this son of David. He believed Jesus could heal him. He cried out that the Lord might show him mercy. And Jesus responded, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. He believed. We don't find a lot of the healing like we talked about with the lepers, going back to what they were doing before. What if we read this event and, and it, in this chapter ended with Bartimaeus going back to the highway to beg? We wouldn't think of it. But when Jesus said, go thy way, this is the only way Bartimaeus has ever had, being blind, needing help. He didn't have a way. He's completely emptied now. The whole being of his existence was, I am a blind man. If people thought of Bartimaeus, the first thing they thought, they wouldn't say it in 2024, we're way more sensitive. But the first thing they thought is, he's blind. And then they might have thought he's about 5 foot 10, or whatever comes next. But he's blind, that's the main characteristic everybody would have known. He doesn't have that anymore. He says, you're healed, go thy way. He goes Jesus' way. This is my way now. You emptied me of all my other ways. In other words, his old life was crucified. It died in Jesus, and Jesus is now his life. That's right. I have what one way, Lord, and you are him. What did happen to Saul and Acts on Damascus Road? He was made blind. He says, who art thou, Lord? And Jesus says it's hard to kick against the pricks. Jesus reveals himself to be the one that Saul had made an enemy of. And Saul says, what would you have me to do? Saul has no other way now. 
Saul is an opposite miracle up to that point at least. He is a man who could see and was made blind. He's a very well-educated and faithful man to that which he had been pursuing his entire life. And Jesus took it all away. And he says, what wilt thou have me to do? It was revealed to him that this is God. It was revealed to him that there is nothing else more important to do. As we saw a couple weeks ago in his testimony before uh, the almost persuaded. Jesus didn't tell him to go sit along the highway for his faith had made him whole. He told him to go. He was not to remain in the same state in any form or fashion. He was quickened. He was born again. Well, you know what a waste it would have been to be given a second life in in the sense of that definition and to spend it the same way you spent the first? Beloved, there's no shame in being different after you've been changed because you've been changed. And if you're born again and you're experiencing some level of shame because you don't teach in the home, men, or because something else is getting in the way of your worshiping God, there's not a lot of places in the Bible, in fact, none, where God says it's okay to be ashamed of me. He says those that are ashamed of Him, He will not be. He will be ashamed of. And we read in Hebrews 11, like we read this morning, of that, that, the hall of faith, those heroes of faith in that chapter. And at the end of the chapter, it talks about how God is unashamed of them. When we read it, I think it's 2 Corinthians 6, when it talks about, come out from among them and be ye separate. It also concludes in chapter 7, verse 1, where God is, uh, is not ashamed to be our Father. This life, this proving ground, this place in which we are, this is where we worship Him. This is where we forsake and crucify all other things because in that life we won't have all those other things. We'll worship Him, but we we won't have any trouble doing so. Matthew Henry wrote, Thy faith hath made thee, has made thee whole. Faith in Christ as the Son of David and in His pity and power. Not thy repeated words, but thy faith. Christ setting thy faith to work. Let sinners be exhorted to imitate blind Bartimaeus. Where the gospel is preached or the written words of truth circulated, Jesus is passing by. And this is the opportunity. Cry out today for His mercy, beloved, for His healing. Cry out and don't let up for His strengthening and His peace, for His will to be done in our lives, for the salvation of the lost in this community and in our families, for the reviving of our churches and the restoration of our fallen nation, for the gospel to be preached and taught to the boys in the home, to the homeless that roam even this property and even this neighborhood. Their hope is not in having a house. True hope lies in Jesus Christ. Be prepared to follow where He leads. This next chapter, this next season, now that we're coming away from a season in which we're seemingly rebuilding foundations, this next season may be a true test. It may be that we're being prepared to carry a great weight that is the gospel, to an, uh, for lack of better words, to an audience that has never been shown such mercy. 
It may be the boy's home. It may be the pregnancy center. It may be your children. It may be mine. Following the healing was a commission. There always is with Jesus and his ministry. He heals Bartimaeus and he says, go. Go. Go and find my church. Go and worship the Father. Go and glorify the Father. In the one account we literally read there in Dr. Luke, chapter 18, verse 43, he, and immediately he received his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it, gave praises unto God. What is the purpose of the commission? What is the purpose of our going? That God be glorified. Amen. This next chapter may be our going and the chapter that follows, His being glorified. Going to the community. Going to the country. Going to all the nations until the time in which He is going to return. It should be our heart. It should be our passion to see Christ Jesus again. Sight was given and kept by the power of the Lord Jesus. The ability to go and give sight to the world is also given and kept by the power of Christ who commanded for us to do so and promised to be with us always until the end of the, earth, or end of the world and that commission in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. Those healed were freed to go. The Bible uses the word given liberty or the words given liberty to go. They're no longer slave to sin. No longer slave to the old master. They're given or granted liberty like this blind man and we see that with his liberty he chose Jesus. It is good for us to cry out for mercy. To cry out for freedom. Are we prepared to follow where he goes? Where he leads? This blind man didn't go to the synagogue afterwards and figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. He followed Jesus to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus. It's sickening to me how often we hear Christians in 2024 say, I have to master this book before I can follow Jesus. I have to understand landmarkism before I follow Jesus. I have to understand this, that, and the other thing before I follow Jesus. How did they learn how to follow Jesus during Jesus' day? They followed Jesus. And I don't, I don't say this lightly. I'm not trying to make a joke of it. Follow Jesus. If you spend one day faithfully following Jesus, you might be ridiculed the entire day because you're doing some things differently than the rest of the world. You might begin to have a taste of what he experienced. Do you want to learn to follow Jesus? Follow him. Leave everything else behind. The fishermen did. The tax collector did. Bartimaeus did. Now in Bartimaeus' situation, he could have said, what was I truly leaving? My post at the side of the road? Matthew left behind an entire way of life. Wealth, even. The fishermen left behind their boats. That was their livelihood. Whatever he's calling for you to leave behind, do it. Do it. There's no value in what it is you're being told to leave behind. But there is a greater work ahead. Our sister churches need pastors. It's a sacrifice to follow God. Our churches won't find their pastors until men do. 
It's just that simple. Study the Word of God. Be fed of the Word of God. Follow where it leads. Let's close in a word of prayer.